वेलकम टू सन टॉक The Sin Talkers around the table today discuss the lives and times of sentiments. We'll think about collective sentiments as a cultural, social, political, and moral phenomenon. We'll wonder if the discourses of sobriety somehow privilege the intellect over the sentiments. What are the underlying processes that drive mob violence, moral policing? vigilante censorship and things of the sort how do we conceptualize the apparent trade off between free speech and equal respect we'll potentially get into concepts of media studies and wonder if the rise of the visual media has in some way fundamentally altered the way the collective communicates reproduces experiences and explores its sentiments and if suppressing certain forms of ex- expression ever makes sense we are very pleased to have three sin talkers around the table today professor purushottam agarwal who is a writer and an academic and the malviya chair professor designated bhu he is committed to freedom of expression professor anjali montero who is an academic and a documentary filmmaker committed to the idea of diversity of views she teaches at the tata institute of social sciences in bombay and geeta seshu is a journalist and consulting editor with the hoot in bombay anjali maybe we set the ball rolling with you um to begin at the beginning and understand how should one characterize sentiments and how do you distinguish it from um, if we take the mind body dichotomy as a as a analogy of sorts uh, how do you distinguish it from the intellect and how do you characterize it and maybe we understand that concept to begin with and we'll unravel that as we go along yeah i think uh, you know the this whole kind of uh, tendency to look at the self as uh you know a mind separate from a body uh, mm. a self separate from the world a, a very a dualist kind of sense of the self and uh, a, a a privileging of i mean whether one looks at it from you know looks at the cartesian uh, kind of rational self or whether one looks at you know the lock and human tabula rasa or the you know transcendental kantian transcendent self this kind of uh, dualist way of looking at things which sort of is a uh, very much a part of a certain kind of enlightenment uh, uh right. you know way of seeing mhm mhm mm-hmm. i think is in many ways needs to needs to be interrogated needs to be questioned um mm-hmm. because the um, you know a kind of affirming the primacy of a certain kind of rationality over uh, and excluding other other realms of uh, being uh, and seeing i think then leads to a uh, uh, a certain almost i would say you know pathologizing of uh, the, sentiments the of sentiments them. or the realm of the of 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 affect of uh, i mean if if one uh, i mean right from you know uh, you know 
sort of uh, Plato's uh, dystopian republic, which has Correct. <laughs> uh, which is ruled by philosopher kings, where there's no place Correct. for uh, you know uh, art or literature. I think uh, some somewhere this this kind of separation, I think, needs to be questioned and is perhaps at the root of certain kinds of uh, you know pathologies that we see. That's very uh, interesting. Today. That's you know. very interesting, and that that is a very Western post-enlightenment kind of tradition, isn't it? And would you characterize it similarly in other parts of the world? I mean, how how would you look at? Yeah, I think I think there are many other traditions that are uh, you know, in a sense, non-dualist that don't that don't make these kinds of uh, mm -hmm. uh, divisions that look at both the self and the world as constructed, and I think those make for more. Uh, exciting, you know, critical possibilities make for, uh, what shall I say, ways that question a certain kind of certainty that is at, right. at, at one level stifling, make for more open-ended explorations, uh, constant, uh, you know, process of negation and questioning, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, which, which, mm -hmm. which is there in many, uh, you know, a, a range of different kinds of traditions, whether one looks at even uh, you know, certain indigenous traditions or one looks at uh, you, even more classical kind of traditions. There, There is this, in many of these traditions, a spirit of uh, uh, questioning. And That's very I, interesting. I think somewhere yeah. the, by, uh, uh, you know, posing the issue in terms of tradition and modernity and looking at all traditions as equally uh, uh, sort of, uh, what shall I say, regressive and modernity as liberating, I think we've, really thrown out the baby with the bathwater. At some level, of course, yeah. right. Purushottam, how do you think of that? And, and when one looks at, looks at literature, looks at media in the last 20 years, as you were talking about the other day, do you see some kind of a resurgence of sentiments? How would you characterize sentiments in both the um, literary realm and the, in the social realm? And how, how do you think of it? How do, where do you see, come from? Uh, in fact, uh, let me just underline one one thing before I say anything else. Mm -hmm. It's not uh, merely a question of duality. Right. It's basically a question how you look at the connectivity. Mm -hmm. And uh, even in the so-called Cartesian scheme of things, basically the point is that there are certain things which cannot be explained through the laws of mechanics. And it is in this sense that he talks of the ghost in the machine. Correct. And I think he's right there that uh, the working of mind cannot be predicted, cannot be explained, and cannot be empirically explained. There has to be a sense of theory, there has to be a sense of perspective in order to understand a certain phenomenon in your own consciousness. Mm -hmm. That is point number one. Mm -hmm. Secondly, about uh, the tradition in modernity, I personally believe that every tradition has had a streak of self-rejuvenation. What do you mean for, by that? for interrogating itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, for example, look at the Christian tradition, if mm -hmm. you were to talk in these terms, mm -hmm. or look at the Hindu tradition, mm -hmm. or look at the Shinto tradition of Japan. Right. All of these traditions have undergone tremendous self-search, tremendous self-interrogation, tremendous uh, kind of conflict within themselves. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, I think, creates a space where we can actually talk of not just modernity in singular, but modernity in plural, uh, modernity all over the world. And thirdly, I think we have to be very clear about certain fundamental human values. Mm -hmm. 
certain fundamental principles of social and uh, uh, individual behavior and uh, on that uh, personally i think it's no point in insisting whether it is eurocentric or it is not eurocentric sure because for example i'll tell you two things personally speaking mm -hmm. in my reflections and in whatever i have been doing for last 30 years i i have identified two non negotiables <laughs> i judge everything on these two things mm -hmm. one non negotiable is that nobody can be described as good or bad as noble or vile high or low merely on the basis of birth right that is one non negotiable for me the other is that no tradition no system of thought nothing can claim to have arrived at the final version of truth mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so this rejection of finality of truth and this insistence on not judging an individual on the basis of the ascriptive identity are my non negotiables sure starting from this i believe that this whole idea of sentiment has to be looked into with a historical context in mind mm -hmm. you see when we talk of sentiment we talk as if sentiment has been denigrated or sentiment has been subjected to the tyranny of reason it's nothing like that on the contrary throughout the world you see since you mentioned this last 20 years phase throughout the world you see in last 20 or 25 years i think sentiment seems to have grown very very fragile right they can get hurt <laughs> at the drop of a word literally or at the drop of an image correct <laughs> i mean i have not come across a case from any corner of the world where a group has been found complaining that my region has been hurt or my rationality has been hurt it's always the sentiments which get hurt I mean, as a rational human being, and I am no—I am not hesitant in calling myself a rational human being. And being rational does not mean that I negate emotion or I marginalize sentiment. Sure. As a rational human being, I sometimes wonder that: Do my rationality has a right to feel hurt or not? Why has it happened? Because precisely that's the point. Because rationality, by definition, implies openness. Reason, by definition, implies recognition of the point of view of the other. Mm -hmm. and which implies a dialogue right you see when this uh, pakistan movement was at the height mm -hmm. and gandhi was insisting on having repeated dialogue with jinnah right so some people particularly from congress and obviously from hindu community were very angry with gandhi that why you always want to insist on meeting jinnah he doesn't seem to be very interested so gandhi said it is his way of looking at things my way of looking at things is that there is absolutely no alternative to dialogue <laughs> so this is as simple as that so i will go on insisting on meeting mr jinnah whether he likes it or not because i think he has a point because right. i cannot just completely dismiss his point i may not agree with him the point i am trying to make is this that when we talk of sentiment as if they have been hurt and marginalized and a kind of rationality or kind of reason has been given undue centrality i think the fact are quite the contrary and 
Purushottam, what about the other allied angle of a question of how does how do sentiments get their collectivity? They somehow magically seem to have a collective force, or at least that's well, the impression one, one gets. Whatever study I have done of various movements around hard sentiments, mm-hmm. particularly over last 30 or 40 years in our country as well as throughout the world. Mm-hmm. As a humble student of history and contemporary affairs, I can tell you, no hard sentiment is ever hurt spontaneously. <laughs> <laughs> this spontaneity is a big construct. It's a big lie. Maybe we ask Gita it's about always that. Constru- yes. <laughs> it is always a constructed thing. It's always an orchestrated Gita? thing. Is it constructed? Is it spontaneous? No, I definitely, it's never as simple as that. Sure. I, I, no, I definitely agree that uh, there is a lot of uh, engineered responses mm-hmm. to uh, the kind of things people feel hurt about or uh, who's, who, you know, who claim that their sentiments are hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, you know, I definitely agree on that, that uh, if you look at each and every instance of uh, this this feeling of hurt and this feeling of being aggrieved, uh, there is certainly um, a voice or an expression or a way in which that is um, uh, given to people. But it manifests and itself but, in but, many ways. But, yeah. uh, but I do think that, uh, uh, you know, there is one a- aspect to this question of uh, of sentiment mm-hmm. which uh, we need to pay attention to and the this is the question of uh, conditioning right. of where the sentiment actually it begins to develop right and right. what right. Uh, helps it to develop right. from the time of a child's birth existence as right. the child interacts with the rest of the world around that's her, very interesting mm. and uh, and what shapes that so when this collective comes up, when this collective sentiment comes up, and you know, so the engineering is actually happening at a much dif- uh, different level, mm. with different forces, different agencies that make it happen. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to pay more attention to all of that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because mm-hmm. uh, that's when we understand better how it actually then seems to seem seems to be like a collective. See uh, about yeah. uh, this. Uh, Construction of sentiments or conditioning. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, family and other such institutions, neighborhood. But I think in modern world, the most important role is played by the state. Yes. And uh, obviously, the kind of citizenry you want to construct, Quite. you instill a certain sense of value, instill a certain sense of uh, land-specific or tradition-specific patriotism and all that. Unfortunately, I believe in last 30 or 40 years, the states, not only in non-European societies, but even in European societies, have failed to realize the dangers of uh, not paying attention to active inculcation of democratic sentiments and democratic sensibility. This can be done only, as I told you, every just like as an individual entity, Every collective or social or political entity has to define its non-negotiables. But Purushottam, how do you create the room for dissent, for dissenting views? I mean, what what I, does the state no, no, do? Rajat, I, I told you. I mean, I am all. I mean, all, all kind of dialogue, all kind of dissent, no mm-hmm. violence. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, <laughs> your sentiments are hurt by a particular film. I would say, don't watch it, and that's it. And if you don't want me to watch it, convince me not to watch it. You have no business to throw stones at the hall showing that film. 
you don't like a book don't read it you have no business to burn that book or demand a censorship see the point she was making yes there has been beyond construction there has been a certain historical conditioning and that is what i am trying to point out that it has been possible because of the indifference of organized agencies like state i personally can tell you i am nearing 60 i can definitely tell you that 25 years ago or 30 years ago at least the hindu sentiments not was not this fragile as it is today right i mean nobody would have bothered a film supposedly presenting a god or goddess in some funny manner right and right. Uh, this was nobody would have bothered 25 years ago but sure. today it's a serious issue sure 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 but i, I you know i i think what you say is right i mean the state and the way in which it works is absolutely um uh, you know uh, helps to formulate the kind of sentiments that we are seeing today the kind of hurt that we are seeing today but how would one uh, diverse the state from the family or from various other institutions uh are they separate they are yes. obviously no, they, they, are they should be they are but they're part, not actually no, because the state no, plays a no, no, huge I'll role you, in all of these they are part of a larger complex of social powers yes in that sense even a school is a power it's a right. source of instruction absolutely and family also you see in a in a state nothing in a sense is outside state Mm-hmm. and in a sense everything should be and can be outside state mm. the point is be, yeah. that the kind of cultural common sense you create in which all agencies contribute and most important contribution is that of the state sure. because i i can choose the school i send my kid to yes. i cannot choose the syllabus the syllabus is chosen by the school under the broad guidelines of the state that's interesting prashant maybe we, the point yeah, why don't we think of uh, is there an element of self censorship in all of this how does one think of political correctness and anything else you might have to say about what has been discussed yeah, no, in the last uh, five minutes talking sure, about this please. whole uh, you know question of the state right uh, i would i would go even further and say that i think the state has uh not only encouraged uh, the mobilization of these so called hurt sentiments mm-hmm. which become a kind of strategic intervention to garner visibility support to polarize right. uh, and these hurt sentiments whatever uh, you know repercussions they are of these hurt sentiments there is complete impunity that the groups that indulge in these hurt uh, sentiments enjoy which is i mean there is ac- ac- uh, active support and often complicity of the the state in the kind of uh, you know violence that is unleashed whether it is against a film or a an artist or uh, you know or various other or or a, a singer who comes from pakistan or whatever you know or a, or a, a cricket match uh, so i so is it something i mean and clearly there's no one answer anjali but is it something that is tolerated or instigated supported you, you, you i, just, I hmm. think it is both i think it is hmm. both and i i think also increasingly the the state uh, has been uh, using these uh, various kinds of primordial uh, identities for mobilization i mean we talk today about hindu sentiments but what is hindu and in the, in the <laughs> past was were, 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 did people think of themselves as you know hindus having some kind of common having sentiment some kind or of unified whole yeah actually. so so this whole uh, sort of mobilization on grounds of these kind of primordial so called primordial identities whether it is religious identities or linguistic or ethnic right. is 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 a kind of a uh, 
something that has been uh, sort of gaining more and more ground and which makes for uh, you know a, a, a certain and it and is being used strategically to access power to uh, you know uh, mobilize uh, votes and you know in in a whole lot of ways that are quite pernicious and against uh, you know a certain kind of democratic uh, uh, dialogue and and so democracy has now come to mean majoritarian kind of uh, politics which is which is a you know a shame well anjali i mean you're you're a filmmaker yourself do you think of self censorship when you do your work do you think of how it's likely to be received do you think of being politically correct is 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 that something which is an active part of the craft of filmmaking and the whole process well, i i, I would it. put it this way i i, I would like my uh, viewers to listen fearlessly right as shuddhabrata sen gupta says i think <laughs> i think we need to as as a as a as a nation as a culture or as many cultures we need to listen fearlessly there's there's too much of a uh, 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 kind of uh, knee jerk reaction to anything that you know we feel is offensive we are not open to listening to difference we are not open to uh, negotiating uh, you know uh, with a point of view that is uh, different from ours so as a filmmaker i think i'm here to open out spaces for dialogue i'm not here to self censor and right. uh, certainly i would not go out of my way to uh, mock at uh, somebody else's sure. uh, you know beliefs or um, uh, you know uh, but 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 i think opening out to diversity opening out to dialogue different points of view to debate i think that's something that uh, you know anybody whether a journalist or a filmmaker or even an academic would like to do through their work and do you think of creative expression as being distinct characteristically from just or expressions i mean do you know this so called poetic license that one can take to you know articulate things in a manner that you otherwise wouldn't is is there a different realm in which potentially the creative expression would lie uh well maybe creative expression reaches at uh, you know levels that are different from say you know an academic piece of writing so i mean if you make music maybe you you don't you you are you are tapping into realms that are not always sort of under your conscious uh, you know correct uh, conscious articulation or even understanding hmm. but hmm. Uh, but hmm. but certainly i i i think that whether it's creative expression or any other mode of expression and in a in a sense all expression is uh, you know some kind of a uh, creative expression isn't it i i i right, certainly right uh, right think that uh, you know openness to dialogue uh, and opening out to dialogue is something that uh, uh, you know we should uh, aim towards sure 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 and geeta how do you think of vigilantism for example and uh, you know clearly there is an element of self censorship at times which which one practices responsibly but how how do you characterize vigilantism and um is there is there a way in which the two can coexist uh self censorship and vigilantism well it's uh, actually vigilantism is forced censorship so uh, yeah. <laughs> it it's really not a question of uh, self censorship um just two short points sure, before sure. i get into that one sure. is like you know definitely there is a lot of self censorship that people practice mm-hmm. because they don't wish to offend or hurt others mm-hmm. but there is a huge amount of self censorship that is practiced by default by by uh, people who are forced to self censor mm-hmm. uh, because 
various, um, you know, maybe uh, especially journalists, for instance, who are not able to write a lot that they do know of, that they have, that they are privy to information mm -hmm. that they do have mm -hmm. because they have corporate bodies that don't, uh, that will not encourage what they're writing. So they're forced to self-censor. And this has become a big problem over the last uh, few years. So it's not really about the vigilante kind of um, right, uh, right. pressure that forces people to self-censor. Um, the other point I wanted to make was really about the state, which I found interesting. And I feel we should go back to it at Please. some stage. Hmm. Because, uh, uh, and again, linked to vigilantism. Because uh, what you said was very interesting, uh, Professor Purushottam, because you're talking about the state and the way it's playing a role in the development of sentiment. But with vigilantism, the state has abrogated a lot of its responsibility. So in, when it steps back, when this it steps away... This abrogation is also a conscious choice. Is, right. Yes, that's the problem. It's very that's right. also, that's so also playing a certain role of withdrawal. So vigilantism <coughs> plays that role. Now, we are seeing a huge range of vigilantism, mm -hmm. not just by the Hindu right, but by the uh, the Muslim right, by various groups. I mean, in Sri Lanka, there is a lot of vigilantism by Buddhists, which is supposed to be very peace-loving otherwise. <laughs> That's interesting. But, uh, mm. uh, but we are seeing it everywhere. And uh, the sense of being uh, having the right to demand a certain way from others, a certain response from others, and enforce that uh, in a violent manner is really uh, what we're seeing today at, in everywhere. And clearly there are I mean, all of these things. Are, uh, religion is one uh, concept that keeps coming up time and again. But clearly there are religious situations and contexts as well, aren't they, where self-censorship is at play, well... Um, censorship is at play where big corporate media yes. houses yes, definitely. Uh, tacitly or otherwise go about doing what they yes. do. The, this, uh, this question of calling the vigilante the non-state actor, for instance, mm -hmm. is, uh, is obviously, uh, you know, it's something that we very, com very um, uh, carelessly use <laughs> because mm -hmm. in some mm -hmm. ways the vigilante mm -hmm. is very much supported by the state and yeah. in various ways. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's not necessarily religious. There's linguistic, there is, uh, there's been vigilantism in various um, other right. uh, areas of life. Yeah, 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 so yeah. Caste, uh, for instance, has become such a huge, which we mm. refuse to talk about, the kind of atrocities that are done by ordinary people to others. Mm. And what role do you think media plays in all this? I mean, does it does it amplify what happens in any way? I'm just, the television, for example, is a medium. It, it plays a very special and distinct role in the way things get accentuated and amplified, doesn't it? I think if we begin to discuss the media, we'll need a separate syntax. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But yes, the media plays a huge role in uh, this. Um, one part of the media, of course, sells a lot of the uh, uh, the conflict that happens on the streets. Right, because it uh, makes for good drama. Because it makes for good, uh, it makes for very good business, actually, much more than just drama. Mm. It it helps the media in, <laughs> in mm. terms of uh, its TRPs and its selling of copies and whatever else. Right. But the media plays a very cynical role, too, in the way it engineers this. Mm -hmm. And we have enough documented instances of the way the media has behaved mm -hmm. um, by taking actively taking sides mm -hmm. in uh, different conflicts. And mm -hmm. I mean, I'm 
we don't want to mention instances, sure, but sure, uh, sure. in the Kaveri conflict, for instance, many years ago in uh, uh, between um, uh, Karnataka, Karnataka and Karnataka. Tamil Nadu, mm-hmm. this was very much used by the media in both the states mm-hmm. uh, to advocate the interests of their particular state. Mm-hmm. And the media, you know, was owned by the same entity. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's very cynical, of course, the way the media operates. That's interesting. That's it. Uh, there's a, there's another yeah. angle to it, which is that these uh, so-called vigilante groups also know that the media is there and they actively, uh, uh, you know, play to they, they perform they, they for them perform, almost. Yeah, they, so <laughs> these performing. are basically mediatized events. If you Correct. if you look yes. at a riot, is a mediatized event. A pogrom is a mediatized event. Right. Uh, uh, right. Uh, you know, <laughs> breaking of a theater is, uh, or women being pulled by their hair out of a pub. All these are mediatized right. events through which, uh, you know, somebody who's a, a complete non-entity gets their uh, 15 seconds of fame, you know. <laughs> but that's recent, isn't it? That's recent, uh, yeah. Anjali, because uh, that's really something that's come up with television. Absolutely. And uh, with the kind of, for in, in Mangalore, for instance, we've seen a lot of that where they bring yeah. in the media and tell them and let them know that they're going to be doing something. Absolutely. Uh, but before the media became so... Powerful. No, actually, what sort of uh, about vigilantism or about this whole idea of fear? Uh, listening without fear. So fear is not uh, just uh, from vigilante groups, and fear is not just from the secular phenomenon of the world. And therefore, I think when we talk of the sentiments, we must talk of other things, but we must specifically focus on religion, because the sentiment related with religion unlike other sentiments, claims its sanctity from a transcendental source. <laughs> from a source which is beyond question by definition. And beyond death. And you cannot logically and re- rationally prove or disprove the existence of God or any divine phenomenon. Therefore, the role religion plays in articulating the aggressive sentiment cannot be compared with any other kind of sentiment. That is one. Right. Secondly, we must not forget that uh, we are just uh, naturally because of our uh, existential pressures. We are talking of our own experiences. We are talking of our own society. But I think let us put it in a historical and philosophical perspective. Yeah. When this uh, satanic verses was published, yeah. <laughs> so some Muslim citizens of Britain wanted to take the course of law and get this book banned under the blasphemy law. Right. Which was on the statues of United Kingdom till 2010 or something. Sure. But then in 1989, they realized that under that blasphemy law of England, only the Anglican church is saved from blasphemy. <laughs> you can blaspheme against Pope, you can blaspheme against Islam, you can blaspheme against Hindu gods, only the Anglican church. <laughs> and the protector of Anglican church, that is the king, is protected, nothing else. <laughs> so the point I'm trying to make is this. That it is not as if this is a problem particularly of the so-called traditional societies. Right. It is not a problem just confined to the so-called non-industrial societies. The problem is that when you accord religious tradition a certain sanctity beyond rationality, beyond argumentation, that is the fundamental source of the problem. And that is the fear. And this fear is internalized in the sense that if I am saying something which goes against my God, my God will punish me in many ways. 
and if i am saying something which is against somebody's else's god then their his followers will punish me immediately <laughs> so the fear operates these two two ways in in context of religion and without any hesitation i would like to point out the fact that for example the religious traditions which have allowed or which have been forced to undergo a critical scrutiny Mm-hmm. have changed a lot over last 400 500 years mm-hmm. you cannot yes. imagine the nature of catholic church going by its nature today you cannot imagine the nature of catholic church in 15th or 16th century right after all it had a dedicated institution of inquisition right to persecute heretics yes. right yes. and right. you cannot imagine the kind of uh, uh, institution caste was 2000 years ago or 1500 years ago That's going true. by the interrogation it has suffered or it has been forced to undergo in last 100 years or so and not only from people like ambedkar but even uh, from people like dayanand saraswati correct the point i am trying to make is this that in this context we have to look at the problems i can say something about jesus christ without much fear of retribution i can say absolutely anything i want to say about hindu gods let me put this question bluntly can i say something supposedly offensive or critical of the prophet of islam right it's not permitted and that is the problem right secondly you you described buddhism as a peace religion peace loving right. religion every religion in its self description is the epitome of peace and compassion right <laughs> it's not just buddhism my problem is that <laughs> how does it actually behave or how it has behaved in history correct that is why i think that as good old karl marx pointed out in 19th century ruthless criticism of everything that exists <laughs> that so is the first pro first premise of progress right or forget about progress first premise of a sane existence right right and right. as i told you i mean there are things which might offend my sensibilities aesthetically there are certain kind of films which i just can't suffer it does <laughs> not mean that those films be produced from uh, be banned from pr- being produced right right i have my own sensitivities i am a vegetarian i don't like non vegetarian food cooked i cannot have a look at the raw meat my entire family is non vegetarian <laughs> so <laughs> i mean i cannot impose my way of eating on them and why should i similarly if you do not like something which i am saying about your sacred areas don't listen to them ignore me i am an idiot talking anything why you should take my criticism so seriously this violent response to any criticism i believe actually underlines a deep sense of diffidence Mm-hmm. Whether it is coming from Group A, coming from Group B, or Group C, and about the role of state, you see, the point is that a state in our country, or in fact under the globalization in all countries almost, is abrogating many of its responsibilities. It's abrogating the responsibility of education. It's abrogating the responsibility of public health in cities like Mumbai and Delhi. It is actually abrogating the responsibility of security also. private security forces are being encouraged yeah so state is actually abrogating many of its responsibilities some of them are quite visible and media is quite upset about them but to my mind the most important abrogation of state responsibility is to create a democratic citizenship 
Yeah. And this responsibility has been abrogated by state without being noticed. And that But is why we? you have this that uh, you have captive audience. You perform for the audience. You just gather fifteen people, throw some stones, and you get your fifteen seconds of fame. And But police. Can we expect the state to play that role at all actively of creating a democratic citizenship? What that is, is the, that what is, is the, ideally speaking is that the is the state the, of um, you see if we look see, at the state today uh, no, what when, is its interest actually uh, that's a different issue its interests are not see, to have when, a democratic when, citizenship when the state would say that either it's it, it definitely is moving towards that everywhere you see <laughs> it's <laughs> uh, the state is undermining democratic uh, traditions everywhere See. so actively i mean if you look at our own constitution if you look at the way in which we uh, you know our founding fathers sat down to mothers whatever everybody right. sat down right. to right. formulate something and then everything gets whittled away so you have civil liberties being whittled away by not just by laws by by legal systems by everything so uh, it's not just a is is you know at at some level there is a dismantling of all of that and in that process in that space of dismantling these mm -hmm. vigilante groups are playing a much bigger role because they're able to move into that space exactly and that is really it actually had, very had, frightening had hmm. we had a feudal state had we had a state claiming its sanctity from some divine source hmm. from god or some revealed scripture thing would have been different here is a state in our country and in many countries of the world which ultimately claims its sanctity from the democratic process every 5 years the elections and in india at least by and large free and fair are conducted leaving aside the role of money and all that at the moment but by and large elections are conducted in sri lanka itself only today only yesterday the transition of power has taken place from one one president to another president so the source of sanctity is the people the source of sovereignty is the people not god in such a situation it becomes extremely important that the state be reminded of its role because this role emanates from its claim of sovereignty you are absolutely right state has been dismantling itself in a way state has been uh, subverting many democratic processes and institutions quite right and that is why the state and the public opinion needs to be reminded constantly that this is not a feudal state this is not a swarya state this is not a state of the uh, uh, king of uh, heaven this is the state which draws its sovereignty its legitimacy from the people I think there is another no. angle to no. it, which is the whole, uh, you know, rise of neoliberalism and the very close nexus between, uh, you know, a certain kind of capitalism and the state, which, which means that, uh, you know, democratic struggles, whether they are by people who, you know, might be losing their lands in right. a particular project, or whether it is, uh, I mean, various kinds of, uh, you know, contestations, uh, are, I mean. democracy i think operates at a somewhat formal level in terms of uh, you know voting yes. once in 5 years but democracy right. at a grassroots level right. Right. in terms of people yes. having a voice in uh, you know decisions over their own lives in 
you know, uh, the issues re relating to their livelihood in whether they will live in a particular place or not. I mean, you don't really see it operating. And I think today, uh, I mean, the situation is particularly uh, kind of, uh, you know, tricky and dangerous. And you find a whole lot of ordinances that are coming in from the Land Acquisition Act to, uh, and a whole lot of laws of course, in any case, laws are not implemented, but even so, having uh, laws <laughs> that are just or laws that are people-friendly are important because then, uh, you know, activist groups or movements can use those laws in order to redress, uh, you know, uh, injustices. Anjali, but what's the good news? I mean, because we, <laughs> some, we somehow seem to be discussing things which, uh, which, which, which don't sound good. Um, what's the good news? Yeah, can I sentiments be used to... Sway and make positive social change, and has uh, it happened in the past? Can it continue I mean, to happen? I think the good news is that resistance is alive. I th I think that is yes, the good absolutely. news, and resistance from all kinds of quarters. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I I feel happy when I hear, uh, you know, that the kiss of love is fighting the politics of hate. It, yeah. it makes me so, and I feel happy when I hear about you know the the Occupy movements in right. in uh, you know capitals across the world. So I, I I feel happy when I hear that in you know environmentalists are resisting the kind of ways in which. Uh, you know, uh, short-sighted, uh, you know, corporate policies are completely ruining our planet. So I, I think the fact that resistance is alive and this resistance involves both, uh, you know, sentiment and rationality, certainly. Correct. Uh, right. I think that's that's the only thing that sort of, you know, keeps one going in many ways. Right. right. And, uh, and also, Anjali, I mean, what is interesting, since I track free speech issues, you know, I've been doing it for the last uh, mm -hmm. five years now for the Hoot. Uh, one thing that I've noticed, and, and this is actually just about three or four instances or five instances maybe in, in uh, you know, I can actually sit down and count them in uh, single digits. Mm -hmm. But the fact is that they exist. And uh, we are seeing a resistance from people who are refusing to accept the, uh, you know, the the kind of vigilantism yeah. that happens mm -hmm. and uh, for instance in delhi there was uh, there was this um, um, pakistani play that was not being uh, allowed to be screened mm -hmm. last year mm -hmm. and somebody else stepped in and said they'll do a screening uh, right. uh, sorry a staging, staging of the play right. and uh, we've had in mumbai for instance there was this again this instance of um, of a play that was going to be screened uh, staged and uh, there were protests mm -hmm. so the protests were allowed and the police uh, mm -hmm. played a role in acting as a buffer Mm -hmm. between those who were protesting and those who decided to stage the play. So um, I'm not sure really whether that is the best way forward, mm -hmm. where you have a buffer zone of some kind, where uh, people who have uh, objections and who have sentiments which are offended um, voice their sentiments mm -hmm. in whichever way, in, in a more democratic and peaceful way, of course. Mm -hmm. And then the ones who wish to go ahead and uh, uh, stage plays or art shows or music and, and everything else are allowed to do. Uh, so there's a kind of coexistence situation here. I'm not sure if that's the only way out. For the moment, that seems to be the best. Uh, which, you know, comes back to the individual. Mm -hmm. When you have individuals who then intervene and who say, well, they are allowing um, the flowering of sentiments which offend as well as, uh, you know, bolster people and help them. Um, so my, my question is uh, really about whether 
that is the best way forward mm-hmm. um right you know right, leave the state right. aside leave all the institutions of the state aside and and let just individuals come together to try and create a better understanding of each other's positions but you know, well, we're talking about resistance for instance which to, is much to, more to organized and much more active see, and much more to me this is more a response really mm-hmm. uh, coming coming to your question yeah to me the best news we need is some good news now for sure uh, th- that's what i'm saying <laughs> uh, the good news is this program is taking place right <laughs> this is a very good news right and uh, apart from the uh, points mentioned by my friends i think the most important good news is particularly in the aftermath of what happened in paris two days right. ago that people have been jolted out of their relativist kind of slumber mm-hmm. people have to realize that it will not work that there are certain parameters of morality for a society and there are certain other parameters of morality for another society i am using that term morality carefully right. and deliberately Mm-hmm. because it's not a question of tolerance only mm-hmm. it's a question of sanctity of human life right it's a question of sanctity of any human life over any kind of hard sentiment yeah human life cannot be taken away theoretically speaking for me human li- life cannot be taken away even by the state the non the non negotiable you were talking about uh, but yeah. but in a certain situation Mm-hmm. going after due process of law maybe the state can take away the human life in the form of capital punishment nobody <laughs> no group no tradition can be given the right to take human life in the name of in the name of taking offense but they're not asking for the right i mean they're just huh? doing it i mean that's what i'm saying yeah. they are taking human life yeah in the name of being offended they are avenging their offense by killing me that's the problem Yeah. they are most welcome to offend me they are most welcome to ridicule me my way of looking at things so offense for offense is fine yeah offense for offense is fine <laughs> i mean yeah. offense is part of right to expression yeah. and being ready to take offense is, is part of uh, the willingness or capacity to give offense that is one anyway the point i am trying to make is rather philosophical mm-hmm. that i sense again being a student of whatever is happening around i sense that throughout the world by and by people are realizing that we have to have a sense of universal human values which in last 20 or 30 years under influence of certain philosophical tendencies was almost given a goodbye yeah was almost supposed to be a bad legacy of european enlightenment now people are coming back to certain fundamental universal human values and i personally feel that if we do not come back to a renegotiated renewed sense of universal human values renegotiated renewed renegotiated in the sense taking inputs from all cultural and religious traditions of the world taking inputs from non industrial non western traditions of the world if we do not arrive at a renewed sense of universal human values then i am sorry i am afraid you are not going to get lot of good news in near future yeah in fact there is only bad news if we do not c- come back to some renewed and renegotiated universal human values what do you feel anjali uh, i mean do I, you feel pessimistic overall uh, uh no i i feel that i while uh, agreeing to some extent uh, with what uh, 
Professor Purushottam is saying, I, I feel that uh, this kind of uh, push towards uh, universalism should not uh, result in a, uh, a kind of uh, destruction of a certain openness to difference and diversity. Because, yeah, because the moment uh, you have universalism, somehow everything which uh, is outside it, the, of the that The universalism is should not be such that it leads to uh, no, an intolerance not. that C certainly uh, not. You know, does right. not uh, no, no. sort of respect the right to expression of yeah. different kinds, yeah. whether yeah. it is expression yeah. in dress or expression in yeah. language. Yeah, part of that. Yeah, mm. yeah. So that mm. for me, that is a very uh, fundamental uh, kind of thing. And I think today this... Uh, you know, we are really facing a crisis of this uh, whole ability to, uh, you know, uh, kind of deal with the other in a way that's respectful, in a way that, uh, you know, uh, recognizes the, the right of the other to be different. And uh, I, I think it is, uh, it, it's, it's sort of across the board, you know, it's, it's something, I mean, if, if you look, for instance, even at a political level, at the, the kind of role that the U.S. is playing within larger geopolitics, uh, or if one looks at an individual level, there is, a, I think, intolerance is something that uh, has become so naturalized. And right. uh, that, that one needs to, to really, uh, I think, somewhere build it in at a very basic level, maybe within the education system, within, uh, you know, the, the, the family. There's a certain kind of... Uh, you know, kind of thing that, you know, this is, I'm right and everyone else is wrong or, or this kind of uh, a certainty uh, about one's position and an intolerance of any kind of difference. And I think this is, uh, our education system is responsible to the, 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 the religious uh, kind of beliefs, the, the family, it, it, it emanates from a range no, of different... About, uh, about, sorry, you know. but uh, let me reiterate my two non-negotiables. One, there is no superiority or inferiority on the basis of your ascribed identity. That is one. That is whatever, religious, gender, caste, whatever. Secondly, I do not claim to have the final version of truth. These are my two non-negotiables. And I think that uh, a really democratic, personally speaking, I do not like uh, the sound of the word tolerant. Uh, because tolerance, to my mind, implies that, well, you are something funny, but still I tolerate you. <laughs> so I really don't like this word tolerant very much. I would like to replace this word with dialogic, curiosity, and mutual respect. In spite of that mutual respect, and as I told you, with this idea that I do not claim, and I actually in this sentence would be replaced with any religious, cultural, or philosophical tradition. No philosophical tradition should claim the monopoly of truth. I mean, one of my most favorite quotations from Avinagopt, the great theoretician, is precisely this. Nahi ekahi drishtya sarvang sarvayan samyak nirvanam nirvayati. You cannot describe a thing adequately and perfectly only by one way. There are many ways of describing everything. The point, however, is that in a democratic society, in a political community, there have to be certain minimum agreements on wage of living. How does that happen, Purushat? It happens through the process of negotiated laws. For example, in an ideal society, we are let, let, let us go back to our own constitution or any democratic constitution. There are provisions provided for. If there is a law which you do not like, for example, Gandhiji is a great example. He never broke a law 
and a surreptitious manner. Right. He used to give the advance notice to the authorities that I think this law is not just. This is a undemocratic law. I am going to break at this particular time. Please do whatever you feel like. So if you think that there is a law or there is a practice or there is an institution which is not acceptable, resist it. Resist it non-violently. But as a civilized society, as a democratic society, you have to conduct yourself on the basis of secular laws. I insist secular because secular laws being subject to criticism without inviting the blame of being a sinner. Yeah. Because if I'm criticizing a law proposed by you, I am not committing a sin against God of this tradition or that tradition. But if I criticize a revealed scripture, I am probably committing a sin against God. <laughs> Therefore, democratic societies always insist and should insist on laws which can be critiqued, rejected, accepted in the secular public sphere. Interesting. So that is the point. You conduct your affairs of society and state on the basis of on the basis of secular public laws, secular practices, secular norms. So far as your spiritual earnings are concerned, so far as your religious affiliations are concerned, they are most welcome to coexist with each other as long as they do not interfere with the public life of the secular political community. It's interesting. Why don't we spend the last uh, few minutes just speculating about what the future is likely to be like and not, not the desirable future, but where do you see all of this heading? What does it take, Geeta? Where do you think we're likely to be yeah, in the no, somewhat I'm, long I'm run? The, I think what uh, both Professor Purushottam and Anjali said about universal human values as well as the, uh, the, uh, you know, the need to preserve diversity uh, is very good because, uh, you know, diversity should be seen as a universal human value. Exactly. And yes. definitely accepted yes. as one. Um, right. But that's the desirable future, isn't it? With but all its the, implications. That's the desirable future. Where do you think it's going? What? Where do you think we're going to land up 150, 200 years out? Where do we think we're going to land 152 years? Well, if we don't look at our environment, I don't think we're going to be landing very far. <laughs> we we will to, not be landing we anywhere. Won't. <laughs> we have to start with with the basics of the environment and preserving what we have instead of destroying it. Um, not just human, you know, life, but all life everywhere. Uh, that's that's one part of it, of course. Sure. But uh, I, I also wanted to go back to a little bit of what uh, they were speaking about uh, sentiment and about the mm -hmm. need to preserve and you know understand and uh, allow others' sentiments to flourish. Um, this this question of the universal value is, I think, something we need to look at. Mm -hmm. uh, what are the acceptable standards? What are the values that we will not um, have any um, compromise over? Yeah, I mean, there is something like universal human rights. and there's, I mean, Yes, but, there know, is. And, and these are still being questioned, right? They're yeah. still being See, questioned. again, the problem, is, since you mentioned universal human rights, the problem is that when, uh, I think 25 years ago, or 30 years ago, the idea of Islamic human rights was proposed. Right. Because universal human rights, according to this critique, were rooted in the Christian Western tradition. Right. And they were not sufficiently cultural sensitive to Islamic human That's rights. That's very interesting. Mm. Now, this is interesting, but this is also very bothersome. 
बिकॉज देन एवरी एंड अगेन रिपीट आई रिफ्यूज टू सी रिलीजन ओनली एज अ मैटर ऑफ स्पिरिचुअल फुलफिलमेंट एवरी रिलीजन इज एक्चुअली अ सोशल एंड पॉलिटिकल पावर स्ट्रक्चर ऑल्सो सो एवरी सोशल एंड पॉलिटिकल पावर स्ट्रक्चर कैन कंसीव एंड कंसेप्चुलाइज ह्यूमन राइट्स इन अकॉर्डेंस विद इट्स पर्पज इज सो यू विल हैव एन इंडियन वेरियंट ऑफ ह्यूमन राइट्स यू विल हैव अ पाकिस्तानी वेरियंट ऑफ ह्यूमन राइट्स देन यू विल हैव अ बुद्धिस्ट आइडिया ऑफ ह्यूमन राइट्स देन यू विल हैव अ जैन आइडिया ऑफ ह्यूमन राइट्स इन विच समबडी हु इट्स मीट वुड बी वायोलेटिंग ह्यूमन राइट्स सो देयर हैज टू बी यू सी I I can see the problem with the, with the insistence on universalism, because the term universal has got a bad reputation because <laughs> of last two hundred years of European colonialism. Right. Because enlightenment on one hand led to the modernization in Europe, on the other hand, the same modernization led to the colonization of the rest of the world. With its uh, disastrous and fearful consequences, Asia, Africa, and uh, Latin America, and everywhere, that is absolutely well taken. Well taken, and personally, I think that when we talk of universal human values, we have to. I I said this in the beginning also. It's not just European enlightenment. The sources of new universalism have to be looked into much beyond European enlightenment. they have to be looked into chinese tradition what is the future huh what is the future well if you ask me at the moment future is quite bleak i am yeah. not at all optimistic about future of humanity anjali what's the future yeah i i, I don't see any utopias but hmm. no, i think i, the, I think struggles will continue and of course the nature of struggles will change if mm-hmm. of course as geeta was sort of hinting at we don't annihilate ourselves and destroy our planet in the next Hundred years, which looks quite likely if we continue the way we are <laughs> going right now. So, I mean, I think it's uh, really difficult to be uh, sort of very optimistic in 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 these times. But probably one will see new modes of struggle, new modes of uh, community, maybe breakdown of certain larger political entities. Uh, Because at least in the context in which we've been discussing, everything seems to be quite closely intertwined with the state. isn't it um, yeah but but you see again does one need to visualize a different way no, political sense, order for us to think of a world see, in which a is in a sense with the rise of globalization that's that's the point we were discussing some time ago with the rise of globalization in fact the state not only in india but throughout the world has been abrogating many of its responsibility right the influence of a state has been reducing anjali spoke about capitalism and so how it manifests itself in many ways that's that's globalization ways. because yeah. of the globalization because Correct. of the global capital the states in many countries and in fact it's not people like us only the late samuel huntington who had no sympathy or any patience for any kind of democratic sensibility <laughs> was angry with american multinationals because according to him because of their multinational composition they have become totally deamericanized so he was very angry with multinationals as an american we are angry with multinationals as indians or uh, whatever because a globalized world is also a deracinated de- world in some way according to him think. according to him the chief executive of let us say coca cola or any multinational is much more bothered about the interest of its corporation than the interest of his nation that is usa <laughs> so in, in that sense we are already we have already entered into a post nation state scenario and now from here what new forms of political community can be imagined 
what new forms of political struggles can be imagined i really do not know but i in spite of my uh, so nas- nationalistic sentiments won't be the strongest sentiments around that's just, i don't that's know just uh, so maybe maybe not right so in spite of my pessimism which emanates from my rational and uh logical thinking i would like to cherish at least one sentiment and that is the sentiment of hope <laughs> <laughs> hope needs no reason <laughs> yeah that's what i'm saying hope needs no reason hope floats <laughs> needs no reason so maybe interesting i would be optimistic without any without any reason, reason. <laughs> so how could sentimentally we... <laughs> optimistic about how could we go on without hope after all <laughs> why would you be making syntax if we yeah, didn't have hope what, that, that's sure. good news that's what i told you sure you sure, are making sure. this program we are talking like this it's a good news sure and that's small good. good news are good enough for me these days <laughs> <laughs> hope is a thing with feathers yeah that's what Uriya Han said. Interesting. Well, um, yes, definitely. I mean, if we don't have hope, what else will we have? We really have to hold on to just the sense of hope. And I think uh, a, a sense of um, at least a, a belief in our own uh, uh, ability to enforce some kind of uh, understanding what we, whatever we can. with uh, the world around us. I wouldn't like to look at it as such a bleak world. Uh, also, partly because I think the rise of um, you know new media technologies, especially the right. internet and things, right. have helped us to envision a very different social kind media of world. and all that. Yeah. Uh, allowing, of course, for the fact that you have a lot of corporate bodies and you have the state and you have surveillance and you have attempts to control even that space. Interesting. So, I think uh, on, on that somewhat optimistic note, I yes. think it's maybe, maybe it's a good time to call curtains. Thank you so much yes. to all of you for making Thank it. Thank you. We look forward to having you soon again. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take care.